Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Timothy Mott, founder of The Realistic Optimist. Uh, today, I have the honor of being joined by Mr. Banuri, who is the uh, CEO of Leadership for Equity, an organization that helps support public school programs in India. And he'll surely talk way better about it than me. So, uh, Mr. Banuri, go ahead, introduce yourself and tell us about what you're working on. Thank you uh, so much, uh, Timothy, for having me on your podcast. Uh, so uh, my name is Madhukar and I've uh, been working in the space of um, education, mostly primary education, uh, school education space in India and that too in a region called Maharashtra, which is one of the largest states in India for the last uh, uh, 12 years now. And um, what we do is at an organization called Leadership for Equity. And uh, the idea of leadership for equity is uh, basically we, have, we call ourselves a systems change organization. So I think the key approach towards systems change uh, in education in India uh, is we do twofold sort of work. We build the capacity of uh, system leaders who we call as the middle management officers and the teacher mentors uh, who support the teachers inside school. So we build their capacity. And that's, that's one sort of a big effort that we do where we build the capacity of these system leaders. And the second piece of effort is uh, we sort of influence the uh, systems, structures and policies uh, by setting up advocacy units under the government bodies directly advocating for uh, qualitative policies that supports uh, uh, teachers and children and also do a lot of external research to ensure that there is trust that is built uh, in the public towards uh, government-run school system. Uh, so I think that's the sort of twofold work we do. And I think, the, 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 I mean, the, we're all working with an hypothesis that over the course of the next five to 10 years, certain proof points are able to create in, in local geographies uh, across uh, different parts in India. And um, we'll be able to show that the public school systems uh, can actually do better in terms of uh, enrollment, learning, and well-being of children uh, than the private schools in India. Uh, so yeah, so that's the sort of quest that we are working towards. Okay, so you work essentially with public schools and I had two follow-up questions. Uh, number one, uh, were you in a public school and is that where the idea came from? And two, what are the main issues in the public schools that you're trying to tackle that, for example, the private schools don't have problems with? Sure, so I think uh, where it all started off for me personally was I started my sort of... Uh, education in a, in, a, in a rural village and it's in, in India. And it started off by me uh, starting in a government-run school. So I think it, it, till my first, second grade, I was in a government-run school in a rural village in, uh, in southern part of India. And I think that's where my sort of uh, uh, journey began in education. But I think, uh, I mean, not uh, after like I realized the recollection that I started my career there, but I think the most significant experience was as a part of a Teach for India fellowship uh, in 2009 uh, in, in its first cohort. And uh, uh, I dropped my corporate sort of, I mean, I, I have a background in engineering. I dropped everything and became a school teacher uh, in 2009. And 2009 to 11, when I did my two-year fellowship, I taught in a government-run school here uh, in a city of Pune. And uh, that really changed my perspective of how government schools operate, what are the challenges um, and uh, what are the teachers, like if you think of the different stakeholders that comprise of a government school system, what are the challenges they undergo? So a lot of my experience really more than my childhood, I think it, it's that two years of experience while I was a class teacher for third and fourth grade children really sort of uh, helped me understand. 
and um, i mean that's where my interest of working with the governments uh, started uh, uh, quite honestly because i think that that grassroots experience really rooted me in, in uh, thinking about uh, you know there's always this feeling about something left undone you know like i was teaching a class of 35 students of fourth grade uh, but there were about 700 students in my school that i was not able to reach even if i was able to do seven for something for my whole school there were 70000 children in the city of pune who were uh, studying in the government school so this aspect of what do you do to be able to deliver quality at scale was something that that uh, Uh, really pushed me to uh, think differently about solving this problem of education, and um, and that's where I think coming to your second part of the question of what are the issues because the there is a visible problem which is the quality of learning, which is the quality of well-being of children, uh, which is the quality of the teachers inside the system. That's all visible problem. Like if you look at the tip of that's the tip of the iceberg, but then systemically there's a deeper problem that actually is making itself manifesting itself outside, right? And that that is. um it it's much more complicated it's much complex it's multi layered uh, and what what it is is all about the capacity of the system uh, see if you see india is a, is a huge country as you know right i mean we have about 240 million children in india and uh, out of them around 120 130 million children study in the government run schools and these 120 130 million belong to the most underserved underprivileged communities of india and all of them uh, go into government run schools uh and 800 plus governments local and the state governments are responsible to deliver that quality of education which they are not able to so the capacity of the people inside the system uh to be able to deliver that quality uh is low i i wouldn't say it doesn't exist slow so how do we sort of build the capacity that's one uh, piece of systemic problem that exists the second piece of it is there are these multiple institutions of the government bodies the capacity of these institutions in terms of setting up the structures the policies that really is weak so how do you sort of support and build that institutional capacity to be able to deliver quality at scale is also missing so if you look at education in india it's a complicated complex systemic problem and systemic problem requires systemic solutions so i think these sort of systemic problems might or might not exist but predominant cases in private school segment these don't exist because a lot of it is driven a one schools so many of these private schools are scattered and there are these few schools um, you know, which are controlled by private school management right so unlike a government system it's much less hierarchical uh, and not uh, so systemic and that's the reason why um, maybe i think that's definitely one of the reasons why the quality in uh, government schools is is suffering so and that's what we are, we are trying to change Okay so when you talk about quality of education do you mean there's not enough teachers or do you mean uh the infrastructure is not adapted or the schools understaffed or the curriculums just not taught properly like when you say quality of education what does a private school have that makes it better quality that a pr- public school doesn't right so i think the i mean all of those issues that you mentioned right it's a combination of a bunch of those uh, issues but i think if you look at it from a outcome perspective like some of the government schools might have great infrastructure they have great classrooms great buildings they are uh, sort of supported well by the governments at least in like the urban cities you have a lot of uh, you don't have infrastructure issues uh, but it where it all comes down to and 
that that's what i was talking about the system issues it might you might say that oh, the teachers are not teaching them well the the sort of the school leaders or the principals who are supposed to manage these schools are not well but i think more and more you dig deep into the issue it's the supportive environment for a teacher or school leaders to thrive you know every time what what is a teacher need end of the day teachers are very self uh, they are the last point of delivery for education they're very uh, motivated internally they really want to do things but most of the times that we've seen that they never have a platform where um, they're able to express themselves they don't have a environment where they're able to learn from the peers or they don't have a system that constantly supports and encourages them in any particular education system you need to be able to marry three things accountability support and motivation so even if one of these things misses then i think your teachers are not able to deliver so i think like this the the idea of supporting teachers using this direction it's not just support right like there needs to be some level of accountability there needs to be some level of motivation that needs to be constantly given to teachers that we're seeing more in the private school system than the public schooling system and that's the reason why the outputs are low when i say outputs that means quality of you know early foundational literacy numeracy outcomes the uh, outcomes of uh, student wellness and uh, well-being outcomes um the the number of uh, uh, you know state toppers or the other um, uh, you know district level toppers that you have uh, in your standardized national assessments they're all most of them are from uh, uh, your private schools and not from public schools so some of those outputs really because i think those determine which kind of universities and graduations that you want to go uh so that's the sort of outcomes that i'm talking about which is a cause of uh, this whole complicated nature of how education works okay now that's really interesting so now that we've kind of touched upon the mission i'd like to get into you know the specifics of how it works so of how lfe works so i scrolled through the website and i saw you had basically four pillars so teacher development officer development advisory and advocacy uh and research and monitoring can you tell me yeah. how these translate in practice uh so you know what what actual actions are being taken on these fronts and i'm especially interested in the uh advocacy so basically what are you lobbying the government to do what are you asking from them and how how has been uh the response from the government so far because uh the other thing you say is public schools are gatekeepers of equity which is extremely true uh and so i mean the government must have a vested interest in making this work absolutely you know i think thanks for going through our website i think uh, we're trying to make it as articulate as possible but i think as i mentioned in the starting like when we talk about systems change uh, that's what we really want to do because what we understand is that education in india is a very complicated uh, uh, issue it's it's uh, it's it's tough to crack it's not an easy problem people have been at, at yeah, from years i think they've been working what we are placing the bets when we saying we are placing the bets on the system in itself we are not saying that we're going to work directly with the children or we're going to directly work with the teachers but we're going to work with the existing systems and hierarchy so that they themselves are there because end of the day they are there for a reason they that system is supposed to create and generate certain results that it is not creating so instead of creating any parallel system why don't you work with it that's the sort of ethos with which we've been operating for the last 5 years so what we've been uh, what what we do uh, specifically is uh, as i was saying the systems change is twofold sort of an approach right the first fold is building the uh, capacity of system leaders and when i say system leaders there are two verticals which are officer development and then the teacher mentor development so the officer development is if you see in a, in any you know, government hierarchy in india about the teachers and the school leaders of of a school about the school 
you have a huge layer of officers, the field officers, what we call. Um, yeah, I mean, in a, in a state of uh, Maharashtra, which has about 20 million children and about uh, 600,000 teachers, which is just one state of India, we have about 7,000 plus officer cadre. Now, the 7,000 plus officer cadre is very, very critical. Think of any company, right? I mean, any other company with, uh, say, uh, 600,000 staff is a huge company. The amount of emphasis they're going to do on the capacity of middle management is uh, extremely high. Like, you know, when you look at huge companies like vice presidents, you know, you have the senior director positions. These are extremely critical for any organization. Unfortunately, in India, the top layer officers or you, the senior bureaucracy gets a lot of professional development, but these guys don't get it. So what it looks like for us is like we work a lot with these officers in building their capacity, the capacity in terms of how do I monitor and evaluate programs? How do I program design? How do I sort of, uh, how do I manage my teams? Any officer has anywhere between 50 to 5,000 people under them, uh, but they don't receive any professional development. It requires different. What is the kind of culture? What is the kind of outcomes you want to create? Um, so those are, how do you make them tech savvy? You know, many, many officers also are scared about technology. Many of them have done their graduation in, you know, pre seventies and eighties. So I think for them to be in service and then not able to learn technology tools is going to be a challenge. So how do you build their capacity in some directions is what we do with the officers. So that's one part of the vertical that we do. And, and what day-to-day -day looks like is we do a lot of workshops, a lot of training sessions, online courses, blended learning courses with them. Um, and, uh, uh, PLCs, like professional learning communities, we run them so that like they learn from each other. Similar sort of concept we apply for the second vertical, which is a teacher development, the teacher mentor development work, where uh, above a teacher, the closest uh, between an officer is a teacher mentor who not only sort of uh, trains the teachers, but also ensures that there's constant classroom observation, feedback, debrief, a lot of that work. And that's a different kind of uh, skill set and work that is required from an officer. So this teacher mentor work is basically into uh, building the capacity uh, of the teacher mentors in, in facilitation, you know, in the content knowledge, because I can't be a great mentor if I myself don't know how to teach math and literacy better uh, in, in, uh, in coaching and observation, in classroom observation. So, you know, some of these skills is what we try to develop with the coaching mentor. Again, very similar approach, doing a lot of uh, trainings with them, working with them. Uh, mentoring them, co-creating and co-designing along with them, uh, online courses, running PLCs. So that's the kind of work that we do for officer development and the teacher mentor development, which is a big bucket, which is the system capacity building or building the capacity of system leaders. And the second piece of it, which is where the two verticals fall uh, into what you have observed, the advocacy and advisory vertical. Uh, what we do is there's one piece, the reason why we call advisory advocacy is because there's an element of uh, advising also we do. I mean, call it consulting, but lack of a better word, I think we're calling it advisory because um, it's all about setting up a team of one to two people under the leadership bureaucratic leadership of a district or a state which is responsible for driving education and we sort of uh, do a lot of policy work drafting certain policies how do you roll out large-scale programs uh, what kind of technology platforms could be used to capture a lot of data improve the governance of the system so and then also advocate for certain uh, work that we have done in different geographies through our you know the first two verticals to be able to scale it up to larger geographies so that's the advisory advocacy work we do. And then there's a research vertical, which basically culls out a lot of research inside because we work with large scale data sets and large uh, subsections of uh, people. 
There's a lot of data, there's a lot of insights that we have, which we, we cull uh, into certain uh, reports. And we, we also do this with external partnership. We just are doing a project with Brookings USA to be, uh, you know, uh, to study like what, what parents think about 21st century learning. So these kind of external research reports is what we put out there so that we are building the public trust into governments again, um, government school systems again. So I think like that's the sort of work that the advisory and the research uh, vertical do, which what feeds into influencing some of the system structures and policies. So combination of these two across these four verticals is how we are sort of uh, placed. Okay. Sorry for the long, long answer, but I don't know no, that that's perfect. It definitely helped me understand uh, way better. And there's one thing I want to touch upon is the research. Uh, and I had a very specific question for you is what's the most counterintuitive thing that you found through your research that you thought, wow, I, I really, I really never thought this was a problem or I really never thought this would work. Like what's the one policy that you came up with and you're like, wow, I, I, I had no idea this was going to work. Yeah, I mean, the thing about policies, even in India, is that a lot of it is, I mean, it's still top down, but very few people decide how the policy goes. And sometimes the policy is backed with a lot of research, sometimes it doesn't have any research at all. But I think the more and more we're learning about uh, the diverse set of contexts, in a, in a, even in a state of Maharashtra in India, is that um, there is a lot of effort uh, that uh, the because it's not about just teachers doing, but how can you involve parents as like co-educators into the overall system? So I think some of the policies that we have bought into help strengthen the governance of the school system, like uh, ensuring that the parents have a larger say inside the functioning of a school. Uh, the parents uh, are not just used, especially during the COVID time. It's not about just parents coming in and saying what the, what needs to be done, but it's more to do with how do you ensure you're taking the support of the parents as co-educators. Now, this was known for a long time, but people never really approached it till the time crisis came in. So especially during the last one year when COVID hit, I think those districts and those uh, uh, the officers who were able to lead uh, parent engagement effectively in those districts really stood out. And uh, that really opened up the possibility for us to say, keep you know, I mean, the parent engagement is something that we, we don't focus on that because it's a, that's a demand side sort of a work. Generally, you work on supply side, improving capacity of teachers, officers, all that we've been doing, but we never really worked on the demand side. And that kept us thinking that what kind of policies really, with a small action around strengthening governance and improving parent engagement, if we were able to do that, what can we do more if we get into the demand side and start uh, Working. So that really stood out as, as, a, as a surprise for us. Uh, it shouldn't have, but I think the amount of results it, it sort of took uh, really did uh, bring in. Uh, and there's a, another second thing is how do you, uh, this is regarding assessments. Recently, along with the partnership with the state government of Maharashtra, we launched, launched a, a simple assessment uh, based, uh, sorry, it's an assessment on WhatsApp. You know, how do you leverage a simple app like a WhatsApp to be and WhatsApp is highly penetrated in India. So how do you use WhatsApp to make it much more engaging for a child to literally answer seven to 10 questions on a particular learning outcome? And that data can be gathered at an entire state level. So we have about almost 2 million children right now using a platform, WhatsApp platform and what we've built uh, called a Swadhyay program, which means a revision uh, where 10 questions are sent every week on a particular learning outcome and the children basically just go through it and all of that data is just given as analytics at a state uh, level. 
very very simple tool whatsapp it doesn't require another app but what that tool did to influence gover- learning governance at a state level uh, for the for the 20 million children studying in the state is amazing we are now using that learning data to influence a lot of uh, um, ways we can support teachers better so i think simple learning governance tools makes a huge difference in in countries like india so that that was another sort of big uh, policy level work that we've been doing that that really uh, uh, has helped the okay. work No, that's good. Yeah, that uh, yeah, I think that uh, yeah. I, I never thought about you know assessing children's kind of satisfaction with the system through WhatsApp. But as you said, you got to adapt to the new technologies. Um, you talked about one of your main quests was to restore trust in the government, um, and I, I want to touch upon that because I think it's a problem in every country. Um, how do you make sure that? you know the government schools the government education curriculums are kind of cut off from partisan politics uh so i don't know if you work with curriculums but obviously india like any other place has a very uh, dynamic political scene and very differing opinions so how do you kind of make a neutral you know education system well i have a slightly different take on it i don't think uh Uh, at least in a country i can't speak for other countries but at least in a country like india you cannot cannot make education different from politics they are both intertwined and i think especially young people or the people who are working in this sector need to realize it soon because we are influenced a lot from the western society uh, every time we speak about like neutral sort of uh, uh, curriculum like it just doesn't happen like everywhere there is an aspect of culture there is an aspect of uh, society that uh, the leaders in positions of influence want to push uh, and they're going to continue to push at least for the next 50 60 years in the country like india i really don't think politics and education will be separate i think it it will be inter- intertwined so i think the sooner we realize how to engage the political class how to engage with the people in positions of power and influence the a better side of curriculum uh, things are not going to change because if you're not doing that you're just giving up and running away from it so what we uh, i mean we consciously a bit uh we do uh, engage but we don't engage too much to a level that uh, we we take sides and that's a problem because a minute one has to be ready with engaging to politics without taking sides and that is tricky and i think we've been able to do that last 5 uh, 6 years by suggesting certain changes in the curriculum by ensuring that we have some of those voices which are never heard are taken some of those changes around equity uh, gender equity especially are are being taken around religious identities are being uh, taken up by the curriculum bodies uh, but we didn't engage as much to the extent as we would like to be because it's hard because politics and education are intertwined they're going to be intertwined but i think the the key skill there lies in the and this is what i call Uh, the people who have that systems thinking ability ability to look at how different people operate how different systems are operating because if you put the child at the center um there are different micro macro forces acting on a, on a child so how do you, i mean if you if you do something here something else changes if you do something there something else changes so how do you sort of map out these systems and uh, and the ability to be able to have that birds eye view is something that is very very critical for people working to solve some social uh, complex social problems and i think um, curriculum is that education is that so i think at the moment we haven't uh, done uh, explicitly in that but but uh i think we need to uh, engage uh, the political class and that that is one of the sort of key things that that we have realized uh, on how do you build the trust back in the public yeah i mean i 
I agree with you. It's more realistic to kind of say, okay, they're, they're going to be intertwined anyways. There's no point in ignoring that fact. Um, I want to kind of circle back to the very beginning of, of LFE. And once again, with uh, respect to the government, you know, how was the project received? How did you start? You know, I read uh, the book from Mohammed Yunus on uh, micro lending and how he only started with like one loan. And then it just blew up to this incredible organization. In LFE's case, did you start by just doing one program by mentoring one person? Or was it already like, okay, this is going to be big, I'm going to set it out. And I'm going to try to get, you know, sponsors. I mean, absolutely not. I think we started off very small. I think we uh, started off as a different sort of uh, organizational setup. We were incubated by one of the big foundations here. We were just a group of individuals got together and we were working with a small municipal body here in Pune uh, on, a, on a project. And that was a flagship project, which we started in 2015. And uh, that's, that's how small we started. We literally were like a three-member team when we started off in 2015. And now we are like a 35-member team uh, in like three years, four years. But uh, I think the key uh, work was we never really thought this is going to be a narrative. I think we didn't start off on a blank slate. We never assumed that this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to solve it. That's the clarity that we've got now, literally in the last one year or so, because the more and more experiments we did, we did, uh, we had some successes, we had some failures, I think we learned from it. And the more and more we reiterate, constantly getting in feedback from the people thinking through what really clicks, what doesn't, what really makes an impact. Um, all of these things really uh, sort of uh, pushed us to where we are. It pushed us to build a narrative around the work that we were doing. And, and that, that took a while. I don't think that clarity was there in the beginning. Uh, because I, I mean, I, I keep saying that zero to five years is that time where organization, social organizations just evolve. Uh, not unless like you have a very point blank approach of this is what I'm going to do. Then you become a product or a service. Systems change organizations cannot have one single thing going on because the approach is always that it needs to organically evolve on what needs the system. And to understand the system itself, it's going to take three years of time. So I think... Uh, yeah, to answer your question, I think it didn't start uh, that easily or uh, that with clarity. I think a lot of the clarity evolved as time goes. We started off small uh, with, uh, uh, you know, 150, 200 school network here in Pune with a local municipal corporation, a municipal body. And uh, from there, I think slowly we grew to, you know, a district and then a state. And that's the way we started growing our work. And so how was the response because i mean from what i understand you started working with local governments and then regional governments and then and bigger governments has there been any pushback from you know people who said no the system's good as it is we don't want to change it or has it been yes finally someone is taking uh responsibility of this project yeah i mean the it goes both ways right i think uh, there have been we've ran into multiple troubles i mean i still remember some of the conversations before even we uh, launched the program or before even we met the actual government officials we had to meet the teacher unions because we needed their permission to do something this big and we know but those are the you know call them troublemakers call them the opposition you need to get those people on board and that required a lot of effort right and uh, uh, there were instances i still remember we were running a program in 2017 and uh, it was a learning level assessment program which the teachers just opposed so we had an opposition from the entire unions, even though we were trying to push it, the unions just come abruptly used to stop some of our meetings. They used to walk out of it. 
and uh, we had quite a big trouble uh, in those three months it just went on to a commissioner's level so we did face a lot of those pushbacks also but i think the i mean what i really believe is like it's not a it's not a linear thing and that's the thing that's the basis of a system systems don't work in a linear fashion it, you cannot say that oh we work with officers they work with teachers and the children are going to improve that's not going to happen like it's all twisted and you know like it just goes back you move four steps for, forward brings you three steps back then you go you come back so there's a lot of iteration reiteration that happens so to be able to see that journey in those ups and downs is again that's the ability of how systems operate to be able to do that is what a systems change works so i think uh, we went through those phases like we've had a lot of highs we've had a lot of lows but i think committing to those things in ups and downs is what is highly respected in the government because what government respects is that they don't see a, a leadership for equity or a madhukar in uh, you know in, in like 6 months and then he's out they've seen me for 12 years so they know that you know this is a guy we know even in the best and the worst of times he's been there with the system and that's what matters more than a, a written memorandum of understanding or an agreement with the government right so these the softer pieces of influence relationships is what really matters uh, at least in the societal context of india and and that is really uh, critical because it's not that that's the core like because you can put all technocratic solutions around it saying oh we're going to you know build this beautiful policy we're going to sort of train all of those are fine those are all because of the heart of it it's all human beings systems are made of humans and especially education systems because you have teachers in it until the time you don't realize to shift those relationships between the people in that system it's uh, it's hard so yeah that's that's been our approach to go through these ups and downs so as as with everything in life it's pure persistence that shows true force of character i had a yeah. completely unrelated question uh, and it may it may be just completely stupid but i was wondering do you work with you know the private sector because obviously they have the tools that you want to implement in public schools so have they been cooperative or is that kind of off the table we don't work with private schools at all we just work with the governments uh, at the moment they do have a lot of uh, influence and uh, uh, you know tools resources at their disposal but i think as i said that the private schools are for serving the children that can afford education that are able to reach out to a higher income middle income or even the rich class of the society but the true need for a social organization is to really bridge the you know inequity gap that exists out there and for us all the children that go to the government schools come from those underserved underprivileged communities and that's the reason why we have stuck to the but there's also the the belief idea right which which you just shared just now around the the fundamental belief if you look at any developing uh, developed countries across the world it will be like some of the european countries or western countries or some of the strongest educational uh, educationally strong countries all of them have developed and become rich countries or uh, you know super proud countries based the foundation was public service that was the thing like you know let it be great public schools let it be great public transportation public health system there's always this public system was at the foundation of it because that really is what uh truly are the that's why we use the word gatekeepers of equity because they really care about the last child and every child and if you want to create that bedrock for a society that's for that's the india that we want the country to stand on not private schools not that they're bad but i think serving the last child is not in the best interest making profit is in the best interest so i think uh, till the time that overseas making money is is the larger uh, sort of a mission 
then serving the last child, uh, you're never going to achieve equity in a country like ours. Yeah, so so the name of the organization is now makes a lot of sense. <laughs> uh, I was I was kind of confused at first, but now that you explain the whole thing, it makes sense. Is is the LFE model uh, being replicated to other countries? Are you working with you know other public school institutions who are interested? Because I see you're you're an Ashoka fellow. Yeah. So you must there must have that has a pretty big network of other people who are trying to tackle the same problems in their countries. So have you been working with them? Have you been, you know, doing consulting work for other countries? How's that been? Uh, not yet. I mean, I mean, the the bigger, the more larger network that I'm a part of actively more than Ashoka is Teach for All. I'm a Teach for India fellow and Teach for All is a global community of uh, education sector leaders, which is much larger than Ashoka. It's across 50 countries in the world. Uh, I'm a very, very active member, constantly keep learning and engaging there. So we have a lot of groups, policy, education, policy groups, and there's a lot of countries that I'm connected to uh, where we engage with uh, alumni in terms of sharing our stories, our work, uh, a lot of those actively sort of mentoring a couple of other alums from different countries like Nepal, Bangladesh, um, uh, and uh, getting mentored by different countries across the world. Uh, so I think it's... Uh, uh, that network is what I'm really proud of to be associated with, and and it's it's more active and uh, dynamic network. Um, and Ashoka, I mean, I've just been an Ashoka fellow a year and a half back, so I haven't actively engaged with them as much as I'd like to. But um, there's a lot of cross-country collaboration that happens through the Teach for All networks and communities of practice, and uh, uh, that's the space that I'm in. But nothing actively that LFE is looking to, because I think I mean. Even if a lifetime is given to India, that's still less because it's a huge country and we have a lot of uh, children to serve here. So don't think we're going to expand anywhere else, but uh, we're going to continue to share our learnings. Yeah, you already, you already have a lot on your plate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so the last part of the interview uh, is related to the challenges of running an NGO. Uh, because, you know, uh, with the rise of social entrepreneurship and this kind of different way of doing social impact, first of all, I'd like to know your thoughts on social entrepreneurship. Why did you decide to go the NGO route and not the social entrepreneurship route? And then just, you know, how hard is it to raise money? How hard is it, uh, you know, to find talent for NGOs? Because that's often the big, big thing is, oh, you can't offer high salaries, so you can't find talents. So how do you kind of go through the challenges of running an NGO and what, what have you learned so far? Yeah, I mean, the first question on why uh, NGO not a social sector organization is, uh, again, as I said, even like the service organizations that are working with the government, there are a lot. I mean, you now have even like the big consulting companies like your Boston Consulting, McKinsey's of the world, trying to get into education. Uh, and uh, I don't know if they're doing good or more harm, but I think they're surviving. They're, they're getting their money's worth. And uh, what is uh, really happening is there is a need of people who are advising the governments that are much grounded, that know education. Uh, because, I mean, again, as I said, it's not management as a subject has never solved countries' problems. It's always been a people-driven change uh, that has happened in, in uh, countries like India. So getting in a technocratic approach and saying that management uh, solutions are going to solve this problem, it's not going to solve, right? So I think the mindset of even the governments to be able to get in uh, uh, people who are who doesn't know much about education to be able to change, uh, I don't think uh, is um, um, is working. And uh, and and I think that's the reason why 
we as an organization when we are setting up we said like if that's the real mm-hmm. change that we want to bring we want to be more closer to the governments we need to have people who are more grounded and uh, uh, for that we can't take on larger organizations we i mean they're all big sharks inside uh, in any system right so having a nonprofit doing some smaller work trying to influence in in whatever small way we can is is a is a route that we went in but that said you can you can always be hybrid we the way we registered our organization is also it's a section 8 company which we can always have the flexibility to move and set up another entity with the uh, uh you know the social enterprise lens uh saying that we generate i mean we still can generate revenue we just have a few limitations to it uh, but wherever we have opportunities i think we tend to ensure that there is some level of revenue generation to make it sustainable uh but that said i think uh, we still uh, non profit organizations who survive on uh, uh, large foundations and uh, the, you know the csr is what we call in india the corporate social responsibility funds that are available in the market and um it's not easy at all i think is convincing the you know different foundations to invest in in governments in itself hard because many of the foundations also don't trust the government saying that do they take responsibility because as you rightly said the trust in the governments is also yeah, getting lesser day by day and not just in india i think across the world that seems to be the trend and uh, the uh, even if you find the money the talent is a big problem because you cannot really even the people if you afford people paying them a good price making sure that these people stick around for a long time i think is a challenge and uh, we've been fortunate like a founding team uh, which is a core team of five members have been with us for five years and i think i'm extremely fortunate for that like uh, because if you, personally we don't commit to the entire journey for 10 years it's extremely hard to set up any entity so i mean we need to take it a decade at time anything less than that to really make change i think it's just uh, you living in a in a you know in some dream world so i think the the core of issues i mean it's similar to any other non profit organizations in india or elsewhere funding is an issue talent retention is an issue uh, especially if you are a systems change organization measuring impact is an issue how do you sort of measure impact even if you are able to um find funding how do you find funding for you know the other kind of work you would you want to do an experimentation your overhead strengthen your hr strengthen your communications and branding that kind of funding the non programmatic funding is what it's called it's extremely hard to raise so i think like these are some issues that that uh, uh, we've been uh, facing uh, but uh, yeah but it's a part of the journey you know like everyone undergoes it and we are too yeah and i guess you just get better at it uh, and and i I mean, I would like to think that as the organization grows, more people are attracted to it, and it's probably the hardest at the beginning. Um, I actually had just one more question, just to finish it off. It was on impact. So, you know, what what has been achieved so far? What are your future plans? Your future goals? And then we can wrap it up. Sure. I mean, again, as I was saying, like for an organization to look at our work in a timeline of six months or one year is extremely difficult so i think we've i mean over the course of last five years going back and forth in terms of what should our impact indicators be we are now proud to actually have a list of 70 system indicators that we feel we know that that's how the system and that interventions are working uh so i think like uh, some indicators are growth indicators right in terms of like the more and more governments are signing up with us so earlier we used to work with one uh, government body now we work with about eight government bodies across the state um and uh 
the number of teachers and the officers that we're impacting, we were just impacting about 1,000, 2,000, now going on to uh, 33,000 teachers across the state, uh, which is a big, big sort of a jump. Uh, we're seeing some improvement in the skills of the teachers. Like we're able to measure uh, that the skills are being improved because of the programs that we're running. The skills of the officers are improving that we uh, because of the programs that we've been sort of running. Uh, so those are sort of intermediary uh, impact indicators, right? Some of the projects uh, that we have run for three to four years in a particular geography, we're able to link certain learning improvement also. Uh, like the, the first project that I was talking about uh, that we ran with the Pune municipal body, uh, we were able to, in a, in a set of 13 schools where we did our uh, in-depth sort of intervention, we were able to improve the uh, learning by about uh, 11 percentage points. We were able to improve the um, uh, attendance by about 15 percentage points and enrollment by about 20 percentage. So I think like these are certain indicators that really showed us that you know, some of the work that we've been doing is scalable, is workable. Uh, but that said, we still struggle with showing the causal pathway, right? Like, because many funders expect, like, how is your intervention really shifting the learning of children? Uh, it's not easy to show it in one year, but I think that the periodic way you're constantly measuring and uh, able to track some of the uh, you know, outcome indicators is a must. And that's what we are trying to do. Sometimes it gets too hard. Sometimes we might have to do a sample. Sometimes it's not a third party. Those those issues are always there. But I think those are certain indicators, uh, growth indicators, uh, uh, the expansion uh, indicators, uh, the skill improvement indicators that we have sort of identified that shows us that we are on the right path. Um, and and uh, yeah, I mean, it'll, it'll, it'll take time. There's no doubt about it, but I think uh, we're going to get there. Yeah, I mean, th those are impressive numbers. And I actually never thought about not only is there the challenge of how do we measure the, our, our impact, but also how do we prove that, you know, these numbers are due to us. That's something yeah. I never thought about. Um, but, you know, this is those are all the questions I had. I'll link uh, Leadership for Equity's website in the description so that anyone listening can check them out. Um, and thank you, Madhukar, for taking the time to be with me. Uh, and uh, we'll keep in touch. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Timothy, for having Thank me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.